When I was, I guess, a teenager, I learned that my dad had a condition known as blank lyricitis. We'd be on our way to church services, and he would begin leading us in a song. He'd get about a line in, and then he'd forget. He'd go blank on the lyrics. And I took great delight in teasing him about that condition. Little did I know that it was genetic. (laughs) And so the boys take great delight in my blank lyricitis. But I remind them that it's genetic. And it's because I have blank lyricitis, I can't recall some of the words of the verse of the song that came to mind with regard to some things I wanted to say before I got into the lesson. But I do remember the chorus. Maybe you've heard this song. We sang it when we were teenagers. Lay down the burden of your heart. I know you'll never miss it. Show the Father where it hurts and let your Father lift it. I realize we have a great many things in common when we come together here each week and in our lives. But each one of us has individual circumstances that make up our lives. I also understand that it's very possible that as we're preaching about keeping the church from the wilderness, that there may be those individuals who find themselves wandering. Perhaps even realizing that that's where you are and that you need to come back to the Father. That you need to be heading toward that promised land. Each week as we are preaching these lessons, we're trying to encourage faithfulness. But we also do so realizing that maybe we have left the Father's house and we find ourselves in the far country. At the end of this lesson, Donnie's going to get up and lead us in what we often refer to as an invitation song. It's a great custom It's a great time, it would seem, after we've contemplated what God's Word says with regard to living the way God wants us to live, that if we're not living the way that we should, that here's an opportunity with the family assembled to make those things right. What that may mean is that you're wandering because you've never become part of God's people, that you're not heading toward the promised land as you are. Maybe you've not acted on the faith that you have that Jesus is God's Son. You've not repented of sin. You've not allowed yourself to be lowered in water to imitate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to walk in newness of life. You don't have to do that during that moment of invitation, but you can. Nothing would thrill us, and certainly more than that, nothing would thrill heaven more than if you made that decision today. But the invitation is also for God's children. Because, as we saw, the Israelites were God's children, and yet they still wandered in the wilderness. And so it may be that you find yourself in your individual circumstances floundering and wandering and in need of restoration. The picture of the Father's love could not be clearer, but that He wants you back. That He desires nothing more than that you are right with Him. So it may be that you're convicted as the result of our worshiping together or what's going on in your life or even the lesson. And at the end of this lesson when we're singing, you realize that this is the day that you need to respond to the invitation. May I encourage you to do that and not let anything keep you from it if that's your need. 
Russell Young was one of my elders in Virginia when I preached there for so many years. And Russell Young was a decorated World War II hero. He fought in the Pacific Theater, but he was, while an intelligent man, a country boy. He was raised in the Sequatchie Valley of Tennessee, and, and where he was and who he knew allowed him and his family to be friends of Alvin York and his family. In fact, Alvin York taught Russell how to shoot, at least marksman shooting, and encouraged him by his influence, even though he at one time was a conscientious objector, he influenced Russell to become a soldier in World War II. And of course, Russell was able to tell me some stories about Alvin the man. But most of us, if we know anything about military history, know something about Alvin York. Alvin York perhaps pulled off the greatest feat in military history. And it happened on October 8, 1918 in the Argonne Forest of France. On that day, Alvin York, it is said, single-handedly captured 132 German soldiers armed only with a rifle and a pistol. And as he was fighting, his original small force that was to go out and to do some reconnaissance was reduced to himself and seven others. And Alvin York found himself out in the middle without any kind of trench or any kind of cover to hide behind. And they knew that he was there because of the firing and the fierce fighting that had been going on. But they could not sight Alvin in or swing their guns on him without rising above the trench line. And they had a machine gun nest where this force of Germans was. And as soon as they raised themselves above the trench line to sight him in, that's when York would fire and kill one of them. He would kill 20 in total before they would surrender. And every time he shot, it is said, even with a compassionate voice, he would plead with them to give up. Till finally, the commander concluded that he must be outnumbered by the Americans. Even though this commander had superior numbers, and even though he occupied the high ground, he thought that he was defeated. And even though York had only seven fellow American soldiers with him, They did not seem to pause to consider the overwhelming odds against them, and thus they won. You know, the odds of some things happening are greater than others. The odds of you becoming a pro athlete are about 22,000 to 1. But the odds of you dating a supermodel are 88,000 to 1. The odds of you winning the lottery are 176 million to one. But there are some things that are more likely to happen. The odds that your identity is stolen is about 200 to one. The odds that you're going to be audited by the IRS is about 175 to one. And the odds that your first marriage is going to continue without separation or divorce for 15 years or more, is 1.3 to 1. Now, I don't know that there were odds makers on the day that Joshua and his fellow conquerors came a-conquering in the land of Canaan. But it seems to me that from a human perspective, that, that we, if we were to try to lay odds on how likely it was for them to take the promised land, that the number would have been greater than that 176 million to 1 odds. And the sad thing for the majority was that that's what the Israelites thought. 
That there was no chance that they could succeed in what they were trying to do. And they were beginning to clamor this and to express their concerns about the unlikely nature of what they were tasked with doing. And it was then that Caleb stood before the people and quieted them before Moses and said, Let us by all means go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But those men who had gone with him said, We cannot overcome it because they are stronger than we are. And it begins to, they begin to cite the, the things that were against them. The problems that they saw with the plan. But what they said and that what sticks with us this morning is that in the analysis they said, And we were grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. As we consider what happens here in Numbers chapter 13, verse 30 through 33, you have a divergent spirit. You have two different minds. It's amazing to me that Caleb and these other spies served the same God. They had the same evidence. And they had the same opportunity, but their view of themselves and of their opportunity could not be more different from one another. Caleb and Joshua were visionary men. And that vision was driven by their faith in God. And this is implied, isn't it? In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 30 where the Bible says that by faith the walls of Jericho fell after they had encircled it for seven days. As the church today, I think we can relate, at least to a degree, with the dawning challenge that they faced as they were given the prospect of conquering the land of Canaan. When we realize that we are living in a world that has less and less faith in the word of God and is departing in lifestyle from what God's word says, we can find ourselves apt to develop a grasshopper complex. But as we look at Joshua and as we look at Caleb, we see the mentality mentality that is needed in order to stomp that grasshopper complex. But the great thing is that God has preserved that for us so that we can review it. And based on what we see them doing and how they were thinking, we find ourselves in a position to stomp on that grasshopper complex today. So what elements are needed? I'd like us to visit the text in this context as well as in the next book of the Bible and see. The first thing that we notice, if we're going to stomp a grasshopper complex, there has got to be confidence. As you look in Numbers chapter 13 and verse 30, given the facts of the case as they were presented by the majority of the spies, Caleb demonstrates uncommon moxie. Between the size and the strength of the citizens and the fortification of the cities, it seemed that all was lost and that it was unlikely. And yet Caleb's reaction shows us something else. And Caleb's reaction is seen in two statements that he makes. He says we should... And number two, he says, we will. I want you to notice that with me, that first of all, he says, we should by all means go up and possess it. Now this demonstrates faith and the promises of God. In the book of Deuteronomy, after this generation has died off in the wilderness, Moses gets up and he renews in their mind the promise of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 20 and 21, Moses says to them, God has placed the land before you. Take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you. 
And if you'll notice, Moses pleads with them in that very context to believe in the promise of God. He says, I said to you, do not be shocked nor fear. The Lord, your God, who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf just as he did in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord carried you like a father carries his son. And all the way which you have gone up to this day. And for Moses, rather for Moses and Joshua and Caleb, this promise was as good as gold. They looked at the promise of God. But you know, he had made the same promise to the generation before. The one that we read about in Numbers chapter 13. But they did not believe it. And so we see in Caleb a confidence that is expressed in the promise of God. God promised it. And he was confident, Caleb was, that God would do it. But also he says, not only we should, but he says, we will. He says, we will surely overcome it. And I'd have you recognize with me that this is confidence in the power of God. As we think about what we see here, it's not suggested anywhere by the godly leaders of this people that they had confidence in their own power, but they had confidence in God's power. The very power that had been demonstrated By releasing them from Pharaoh, the strongest man, the most powerful man who was living at that time. And a a power that had parted the Red Sea so that they passed through on dry ground. They saw that the very power that had been demonstrated in the past was present for them as they went forward. And thus they trusted in the power of God. May I suggest to you that those same two elements, God's promise and God's power... Is still available for us today. When you begin to examine the promises of God, the New Testament speaks of those promises not just as existing, but as being superlative in their nature. If you read, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 20, we see that the promises of God are faithful and they're sure. But if we go to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, we find that they are precious and magnificent. We read in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6 that the promises of God are better and more excellent. I think about the day that Solomon was dedicating the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 56. And on that day, he says that there has not failed one word of all of God's good promise, which he promised unto us through Moses, his servant. If God was delivering promises like that under that time in which the promises are not as good as they are now, what will God do today? Can't we have confidence in the promise of God today? And what has God promised us in the New Testament? He has promised to be with us as we dare to do His will in whatever we do. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20. But also we think about the fact that God's power is as powerful as it was on the day in which Caleb and Joshua said, let's go and take this place. When you think about the power of God, Luke chapter 1 and verse 37 says that nothing shall be impossible with God. In Luke 18, 27, the Bible says the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. The power of God makes the promises impactful, makes us believe that God has the ability to do what He promises that He's going to do. Suppose I were to promise you that I would give each and every one of you $10,000 if you'll meet me down in the fellowship hall immediately following services. I don't see anybody jumping up and getting the place first in line, but maybe some of you would show up just out of curiosity as to whether or not I would be able to do that. 
You might be skeptical, and rightly so, but, but suppose Bill Gates were to come into our assembly today, and Bill Gates were to say, I will give you, I promise, $10,000, each and every one of you, if you'll meet me in the fellowship hall after services. Some of you might not even wait till the last amen to go down and reserve your place in line. You may doubt his motives, but you would not doubt his ability to make good on the promise. But how much more can we have faith in God's ability to do what He has promised to do? Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. You know, as we look at the power of God, the Bible often tells us that God is our confidence, or He is our reason for confidence. But having said that, we should be confident We should be confident to dare that Bible study. We should be confident to stand up in scary situations. We should be confident to lead or to serve and to visit or to do that thing that's uncomfortable, whatever it may be. We need confidence and we have confidence in the promises and in the power of God. Andy Roddick is one of the best tennis players, I guess, still playing. And certainly as you look at his whole career... He has been the number one tennis player in the world. He's won countless tennis tournaments. He started playing tennis when he was three and a half years old. And he was always challenging others to play him in a game of tennis. He would do so, and even if he couldn't get somebody to play him, what he would do, according to his mother, is he would go into his garage and he would play imaginary opponents. And, of course, he won every one of those matches. But so confident was Andy Roddick in his future And the thing that he would achieve is that for uh, presents for his family at Christmas time when he was seven years old, he gave autographed tennis balls of himself. He was confident. And you know, it paid off. But you know, the foundation beneath our confidence is so much greater because it's not in ourselves, it's in God. You want to stomp the grasshopper complex that says we can't, they're bigger than we are, then there needs to be confidence as there was with Caleb. There was another element present that day with, or in that time with those men, and that was their optimism. If you look in Numbers chapter 14, verse 7 through 9, and maybe it was the confidence that Joshua and Caleb had that made them so positively optimistic as they assess what's about to take place. They surveyed the situation, and they saw the taking of Canaan as a no-lose situation. Whereas the Israelites as a whole had a pessimistic spirit, they saw victory as looming. They were optimistic about the whole situation. If you'll notice, they were optimistic about the land. In Numbers chapter 14 and verse 7. And you'll notice that they didn't just refer to it as the land. They referred to it as a good land. And they didn't just refer to it as a good land. They referred to it as an exceedingly good land. That word exceedingly is a very interesting word. It means strength and power. It means very. The idea is that it's exceptional. And it's the word that is used by Moses in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5 when he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all. And it's a word that reveals great depth. Did you know that's the same word that our God used in surveying and summarizing the creation? In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31, the Bible says that God saw all that he had created and behold, it was very good. 
So here's Joshua and Caleb as they look at this land that the spies said we cannot take. And they said it is an exceedingly a very good land. That's optimism. But you'll also notice that they had optimism in the labor that lay before them. And what was the labor? In Numbers chapter 14 and verse 9, they were to conquer the people that lived in that land. And so optimistic were they that as they looked at the people, instead of seeing them as giants or descendants of the giants, they said they are our prey and their protection has been removed from them. You know, as they looked at the task that God had given them, they said, bring it on. But then also they were optimistic and most of all about the Lord. In the middle of that, you'll notice in verse 8, that they mention the Lord. In fact, they mention in this very brief part of the context, the Lord three times. And they say the Lord is with us. And they say the Lord is pleased with us. They knew that if God was for them, then there was nothing that could be against them. And as we look at their circumstances, we realize that that was a different time. And God employed different methods in order to be with them. But their optimistic remain, their optimism remained because of those very factors. And may I suggest that we have the same reason for optimism today. We don't have a, a physical land to inherit, but we do have an inheritance that Hebrews 9 and verse 15 calls eternal. And when we think about the task that's before us, it's a daunting task, but we still have the advantage over the enemy because of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 2, the Bible says, For as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part of the same. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil and to deliver us who through fear of death were ourselves subject to slavery all of our lifetimes. When we think about the battle that we're in and that which has to be conquered, we have the same reason for optimism. And even though we live in a different age, we serve the unchanging Lord Malachi 3 and verse 6 assures us that he is not going to change. The word we often use there is the word immutable. When you think about immutable, that means not changing even in the smallest measure. When you think about God, he is immutable because he's not going to change even in the smallest measure. He's not going to go from better to worse. He's not going to go from worse to better. You see, for God to be more perfect, it would mean that he's not perfect now. And for God to be less perfect than he is now would make him less than God. And so the optimism that they had on that day is the same optimism that we should have. You know, there were some very powerful comments made in our Bible class this morning about how dawning it is to live in a society that has changed so much. But we have the same reason for optimism that they had against such great odds on that day. How are we going to stomp out the grasshopper complex? There has to be obedience. Now for that, we look not in numbers as you see there, but go over to the book of Joshua. And in Joshua chapter 14, what has occurred by this time is that the Israelites have conquered. In the next generation, they have conquered the land of Canaan just as God had promised them. And so as you get to Joshua chapter 14, what they're doing is they're divvying up the land among the tribes. And along comes old Caleb, who is a survivor of the wilderness wanderings. And he comes up to Joshua and he reminds him of a promise that Moses had made to him. That he was going to inherit a particular place. The name of the place is Hebron. And to show that his request was valid, he called upon this in his request. He said, because I have followed the Lord 
fully. Did you know that phrase is used of Caleb legitimizing his obedience three times in the second part of Joshua chapter 14? Joshua could say, I have followed the Lord fully. That word fully is a very interesting word itself. Because it's a word that means to follow after or behind. And it speaks of total submission and sincerity. But what's the connection between obedience and killing the grasshopper complex? When you are focused, when you're riveted on obeying God, you don't look at all the reasons why you can't. You look at the one reason why you can, and that's because God said so. How are we going to accomplish the will of God in a world that's less inclined to let us do so? We're not going to focus on their pressures and their intimidations and their manipulations. We are going to put our whole heart into believing and teaching what God and His Word says to us. We're not going to be politicians that wet our fingers and stick them to the wind And say, what do the most people want us to do? And what do they want us to be? Our accountability to God and His Word will keep us from being accommodating to people where God's Word won't let us do so. When you look at Caleb, he's such a hero because he's willing to do what God's Word says fully, no matter what anybody else around him, even his own brethren, are not willing to do. Vernon Hammett is a man unknown, I'm sure, to most People here. He was raised on a farm, and he, as a part of growing up, he was taught from a young age to operate heavy farm equipment, to drive tractors and such. Later on, he would join the army. And as a part of his training, his drill sergeant one day got him behind the wheel of an M1A1 battle tank. He told him to drive it. Now, because Hammett was raised on a farm, he learned a principle early on, one that's very commonsensical, and that is you don't drive that heavy equipment to a place that you can't see. You see it before you move it. Well, he was very surprised and taken aback when his drill sergeant was yelling at him, was screaming, and with choice words, left, left, hard left. But he didn't know where he was going. He had three tiny periscopes, and they really didn't give him any indication. And so he turned to his drill sergeant, and he said, I can't see what's on my left. And the drill sergeant said, I didn't command you to see what was on your left. I said left, hard left. Hammett decided he was going to teach that drill sergeant a lesson. And so as hard and as fast as he could, with every command, he turned. And when he was done with the training, he he thought that he would get out of that tank and see death and destruction everywhere. But when he came out of the top, he saw admiration on the faces of his fellow trainees. They couldn't believe that he could maneuver that vehicle so well as a novice. You see, Hammett couldn't see where to direct that tank, but his commander could see. And so he, that is Hammett, had to trust and obey the orders of him, that is the drill sergeant. Oh, it's easy for me to obey God when I see and when I can understand. But you know where the challenge to obedience comes? It's when God in His Word says something that's very difficult or that cuts against my grain. But when I look at my master and my commander, I can trust that he can see and he knows what's best. And if I will do what he says, I'm going to be victorious. How do you stomp the grasshopper complex? There has to be obedience. But one other thing to mention just very quickly. If we're going to stomp the grasshoppers, 
There's got to be resilience. And I think this is my favorite part of all that we see in the life of Caleb. And we read about it in Joshua chapter 14, verse 10 through 12. What makes Caleb such a remarkable disciple is his staying power. How long was he courageous and optimistic? How long was he obedient? How long was he confident? Isn't it interesting that as he comes up and makes this request, he says, I'm now 85 years old. For 45 years, I've been serving my God. As we look at Caleb's life, we see a man who, at least from the age of 40, had been serving God faithfully. In Joshua chapter 14, he demonstrates that about himself. And then we begin to think about Caleb. He had covered every square inch of ground that the other wanderers had. And all what he had experienced and all what he had seen in 40 years of wandering. He had seen the rebellion and the faithlessness of his brethren. He had seen the divine punishment. He had gone thirsty. He had been weary. But it didn't make him bitter. It didn't make him disgruntled. And it didn't make him discouraged. I want you to envision with me. As strong as he was in his youth, he claims. That he comes up and he says to Joshua... Now give me this mountain. Unbelievable. I love seeing our children, our little children, as they sing songs in Vacation Bible School or Pew Packers. Because I see innocence. And I see such faith. And I enjoy watching our youth and our teenagers as I see that faith grow and develop. And I see the maturity as it, as it comes about. The maturity in Christ. And isn't it thrilling to see men and women in the prime of their lives faithful to God. But nothing encourages me to be faithful to my God. More than a seasoned saint. Who has been through so many spiritual struggles and trials and storms and disappointments. And whether it's being here with them in worship or seeing their good works. They don't say it, but you know what I hear them saying? Give me this mountain. Bring on the giants and watch them run. You know, some of us aren't in the twilight years of life yet, but we're going to be if we live that long. How are we going to be when we get there? When we get to be the age of Johnson and Harry and Carolyn and so many others, you got to begin now. Resilience was a lifelong project for Caleb. You know, when you think about what we see in Caleb and we see in Joshua and Moses, the ones who were not afraid to step on the grasshoppers, what do they have in common? There's a confidence in God's promise and God's power. There's an optimism. There's an optimism as they look at the inheritance, as they look at the enemy, and especially as they look at their Lord. There's a determination to be obedient, to focus on that God said so, and to not make decisions in their lives individually or as a people based on what the winds are that blow. There's also a resilience. Hey, are you going to be spiritually strong and alive when you get to be Caleb's age?
Only if you start now. That may mean that you have to leave the wilderness where you find yourself right now. If that's you, and if this is your invitation, won't you come right now as we stand and sing?